there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Welcome to Secrets of Organ Playing podcast number 113. Today is Sunday, September 24, and today's guest is Marko Pranic. Marco is an organist, tenor, conductor and theologian, a graduate of the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome, Italy, and the University of Rochester, where he studied at the Eastman School of Music. He also studies liturgy at the Liturgical Institute. Marco is an associate director of music and organist at St. John's of Rochester in Fairport, New York, where he passionately works in the field of sacred music as a pastoral musician and is the instructor of sacred music at the St. Bernard's School of Theology and Ministry in Rochester, New York. Born in Split, Croatia, Marko first studied music with sister Mirta Skopuljanic, organist at Split Cathedral, and took voice lessons with Ante Ivic, tenor from the Croatian National Theatre in Split, and Professor Bojan Pogormilovic, Vatroslav Lisinski School of Music in Zagreb. In this conversation, you're going to find out how Marco fell in love with the organ, what challenges did he have to overcome, what things is he currently working on, and of course, his plan for the future. Let's go to the show. Thank you so much, Marco, for uh, joining in this conversation. We're connecting across the Atlantic and we're seven hours apart, but modern technology lets us to talk about the things that we love and enjoy. Pipe organ, liturgical organ playing and things like that. And um, we are uh, so glad that, uh, you know, uh, our listeners will be listening to us uh, from 89 countries around the globe. So you're very generous. Thank you for your time and welcome to the show, Marco. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure. Uh, let's start with this interesting question. Uh, maybe you remember the time uh, when somebody introduced you the organ when you were little, maybe. Uh, how did you first fell in love with it? Can you share the story with us? Yeah, I mean, I started singing at the church when I was about seven years old, so basically first grader. My grandfather was the one who took me to the church as a as a child, so basically since I was four years old. And the, from the first time I heard the organ, it was just, it was kind of a dose of magnificent mystery to me that I wanted to explore more. And then I started singing in the church and I started taking piano music lessons at the same time. <clears throat> and then I think I was about 10. I was with my grandfather in the choir loft. It's this old Italian style, huge Gothic church, neo-Gothic church um, in my, in my hometown. Um, and we're up in the choir loft and the organist just didn't show up and it was Christmas time mm -hmm. and I knew all the carols by heart and I knew how to play them. And one of the singers told my grandfather like, Oh, well, we know that he can play something. So let him, let him try. And I did. And it was my first time actually playing in the church. And ever since that happened, it was kind of a roller coaster that took me from there to them playing for the 
main parish church um, when I was 13, took charge of the adult choir of 30 people by the age of 14. At the age of 18, I was a point organist at the cathedral in my home diocese. I went on to continue my theology studies and my music studies, both in split Croatia, Zagreb, Croatia, partly in rural Italy. And that also led me to the Eastman School of Music at the end, where I did my two years of study under David Higgs. And I just graduated this May from the University of Rochester with my second bachelor's degree. This one was in music. I have bachelor's in math and theology. And now this one is in music and I'm taking a year off of school. I'm okay. 27 year old with three degrees and I just need a break because my brain just gets tired and I need more time to practice and get all that repertoire under my fingers. So it's basically working in the ministry for one full year and then probably going back to school. Wonderful story, Marco. So uh, when the organ captivates you, it never lets you go, right? It's like... That's, that's correct. It's like a dish addiction in a good way. <laughs> It's a good addiction, yes. Uh, by the way, have you ever spent a day without practicing, without touching the organ? You must have. Actually, actually yes, but also this year was my first, since this is my first year I'm employed full-time with everything included, um, it was my first vacation. So actually, there were, this was a first Sunday I believe since I started playing organ that I haven't touched the organ on a weekend. It was quite an interesting how did, experience. <laughs> how, how did you feel? Was it strange? Something was missing, right? Uh, I felt empty, but then again, I was like, well, this is what vacation is supposed to do, a break from what you usually do, so I'm still getting accustomed to that. You're right. If it's work, uh, then vacation is needed. But if it's art, you want to do more of it, right? Exactly. And that was my battle, inside battle. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So wonderful. You started from this uh, early age and you have this Croatian experience, right? Uh, yes, I'm a native Croatian. I was born and raised there. I only came to the States. Now it's beginning of my fourth year. Mm -hmm. so and, I had uh, quite some time in Croatia and then Italy and then United States Croatia has beautiful organ culture which not too many people from western countries know about right uh, it's 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 a what a Catholic country predominantly Catholic country yes which, more uh, than 90% people are Catholic mm -hmm. just like in Lithuania almost it's a little less, maybe 80% are Catholics. Uh, but, uh, but Croatia, I remember maybe 10 years ago, there was an historic um, Congress of International Society of Organ Builders, ISO, in, uh, in one of the cities, maybe in Split, I think, mm -hmm. there. We had this Congress and they visited many historical organs there and everybody was crazy about this country about the old organ culture which was just waiting to be discovered or rediscovered predominantly italian and some of the german influence but we had one of our own like nakic was pretty much i think he's the most famous croatian organ builder of the old age then we have and nowadays we have some uh 
Valka organs and mm-hmm. old Rieger from the turn of the century, which are really good. So it's quite a diverse population of organs. So Marco, uh, and probably your last name is pronounced a little bit different in uh, in uh, in your yes, you, you, it's Pierre N I C H Branich. Branich, okay. Yeah. And how do your uh, <clears throat> your co-workers, uh, let's say, call here in America? Oh, they call me Pranic, and then they have like, how do we pronounce this? I was like, well, basically, it's Panic with letter R right after P. <laughs> <laughs> I see. <laughs> Uh, right, but of course your parents call you uh, the the right way, right? <laughs> yes, they do, but it's only the first name. They don't. I don't think they use the last name. I haven't heard them use it in a while. <laughs> so, how did your um, Croatian experience uh, shaped your future in America? Did you uh, when you came, for example, to Eastman School of Music? and uh, discovered another organ culture there. Um, Were you, um, how did you feel about that? For example, when I and Osha came from Lithuania to America also, we we already had uh, our master's degree and bachelor's degree from Lithuania. Uh, And uh, American degree was sort of on top of that, but it was very, very strange because the system was very different in the States. Mm -hmm. What was your experience? So Croatia is predominantly, I would say, more of a, has more of a singing culture, especially from the part I come from. And it's the very southern part of the country. It's Iceland, it's island of the coast of Split. Its name, it's Hlar. It's quite popular mm-hmm. uh, tourist destination. And we have this rich uh, a cappella male singing tradition. So how did that prepare me for the States? It was just amazing because uh, it early teaches you how to listen for patterns, for harmony, for harmonic progressions. We used to sing without notes. If it's one person, it's one voice. If it's two people, we sing two parts. If it's three people, three parts, four, four. And it goes about to seven or eight parts, depends how, depending how many people you have. <clears throat> uh-huh. Excuse me. And what that taught me is basically listen for others and listen for those progressions, everything else, therefore building my oral abilities. And then when I came to the States, uh, as you said, it's kind of a new system here and very much different than we have in Croatia. I never had any problem accompanying the congregation because I knew how they would react. If I heard them once, you could basically pick up what they react well to and how to accompany them well without overpowering them and just leading them, not not either drawing it back or just, how did they say once that organ is not, a, the church is not attached to the organ, but the organ to the church. So mm-hmm. it, my Croatian experience taught me how to listen, and that helped right. me immensely here when I accompany the choirs, when I accompany the congregation or the soloist, just that listening, mm-hmm. listening mm-hmm. ability, be able to focus on what other one is doing. Now, Marco, you mentioned that uh, in Croatia, when you one person singing, you have just one voice, two pe- people, uh, two voices, right? Three people, mm-hmm. three or lecture and so on. How does it sound practically? It's do they harmonize in intervals like thirds or sixths or fifths or fourths? What what's happening there? It's a very basic harmonic language. The thirds are basic. 
the thirds are the basis of it. Mm-hmm. And it's usually in the major key, except for the Holy Week when things turn slightly minor, but mostly it's Holy Week, it's modal. They switch back mm-hmm. and forth. Um, but very basic harmonies like one, four, five, six, four, five, one. But the tenor one is always in charge. He has the melody and everybody else is an accompaniment, basically making it mm-hmm. homophonic. Mm-hmm. Polyphony is not something they really do in that um, in the people singing. So, how was the organ used then historically within the liturgy in Croatia? Organ was used to accompany that, and that's how mm-hmm. I learned my harmonic patterns. Uh, it's just there to amplify the support and just support and amplify the singers, and that's why knowing the melodies first. I have I have had no problem going to the organ and playing the exact same thing. So basically, having having learned it before and knowing exactly how it goes is basically small secret. I never ever use organ scores when I play in Croatia or mm-hmm. hymnals or nothing. It's just you know most of the repertoire by heart, mm-hmm. and. For me, it's a challenge because singers will sometimes comment that they never know um, how the piece is going to sound because for me, playing without scores, I mean, here in the States, I always have some new idea, new harmony to put in, so it's always kind of surprise when when I play the same hymn over a period of like a month or two or three. It's always going to sound a bit different. I see. Uh, very interesting. In Lithuania, before we became independent in uh, 1991 or, or 1990, excuse me, uh, we also didn't have any hymnals. You know, <laughs> organists had to accompany by, by by air, and every they memorized the melody so well, and they they supplied the chords basically just by feeling. Sometimes there is the joke in Lithuania, which runs like, uh, "Oh, we play." white keys on uh, weekdays and black keys on Sundays. <laughs> you see, it, it's a joke, but it's not really a joke sometimes. Sometimes they are really doing this and it, it sounds so bizarre sometimes. It is, and exactly as you said, it's playing it by ear. You just mm-hmm. know it. It's It's part of who you are and what you are, and it's just you're expressing it. So one time I tried to change the harmonization in one of the pieces, like, no, 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 go back to the old stuff. <laughs> we know mm-hmm. how it sounds just played like that. Wonderful. So, of course, your harmonization experience helped you shape your your harmony skills, and you were well ahead of, of the pack in, at Eastman School of Music, right? Where they just started probably picking up uh, the harmony uh, progressions and how to use the chords and and you knew that already <clears throat> ages it's, ago it's it's very different system because in europe they teach us from a small age everything they know here basically my level of music theory when i came to the states would probably be i would That's say it. on the level on the level that master students who have the green theory here are at Mm-hmm. Because in Europe, as you know, I'm, I suppose in Lithuania as well, for you to even enter the conservatory or, or a music school, you need to know all the harmony or the counterpoint, oral skills. 
it's pre-required, whereas in the States, for them, it's important how you make music and how you play. And mm -hmm. they then built up on that and around that. But performance mm -hmm. is much more emphasized than the theory. Whether in Europe, it's the other way around. No matter how good you play, if you didn't know the theory well and oral skills, you basically couldn't get into study with anyone. Well, exactly. And uh, you're right <clears throat> about that. Because in the States, when you become let's say, a freshman at, at the college level, right? You start learning the theory from scratch, from treble exactly. to left, but then it gets harder and harder very, very quickly. And a lot of um, uh, freshmen and seniors and, and other people in that level, they struggle a lot with theory, but they have to you know, gradually speed up their learning process. That's that's correct, but it's also too much information for them to just absorb in four semesters of theory that we have here. I can understand on my side, I was trained in it uh, through high school and then through my studies at Institute for Safety Music in Zagreb. So I had like six years of oral skills and harmony training and keyboard harmony training before I even came here. And none of the students that started here, they did not. They just mm -hmm. focused on their instrument, maybe some basic chord progressions. So it was, I tested out of the first year of theory. I did not even take it, but it's, it's a lot. I know it's a lot for them to process in four semesters of theory and basically never mastering it as they should. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they do have the knowledge, but to put it to practical use and think about it really deeply, I don't think it's it's um, it's enough mm -hmm. because they just I, they're just missing that component. Very very true, Marco. And I bet that uh, when you came to the states, you knew how to harmonize, and basically you could even start to improvise because it's just one step further, right? That's exactly as one of my teachers, Professor Bellari, said. Um, Improvisation is basically the much repertoire you learn. It's same thing with the reading. You know more when you read more. Same thing with improvisation. As you learn more repertoire, you learn new progressions, new ways how to treat some passages or harmonies, how to harmonize different stuff. And basically all of it helps to build up your improvisation skills. Mm -hmm. It's not something you are just born with. It's something you really learn and work on to be good at. Exactly. Um, so, so I'm so glad you had this previous knowledge and experience with theory and harmony, which actually now facilitates your uh, development as as a complete musician, right? Not only as, as exactly as Maestro Hector Oliveira once said in a master class I was in. Um, it's all about the baseline. Change the bass, and everything changes. And that's one of the deficiencies I. I've seen here in the States that many students work on like figure based exercises. We had, uh, it was a book by a French theorist, uh, Vidal. Mm -hmm. And I think Nadia Boulanger after him, uh, they had those exercises figure based when like, when you get to the half of the book and you see very weird key and then you see four or five numbers that beneath each bass note. If I gave it to new students here, they would need a few days just to write it out. 
So yes. I believe that music theory, the earlier you start it, the better. And it also helps me while playing, and that allows me to reharmonize, or if I don't have a harmonic accompaniment written out, if I only have a melody, it allows me to harmonize it on, on the spot with basically nobody knowing that I don't have scores in front of me. Mm -hmm. And they could uh, listen to you and swear that whatever you are playing right now is composed previously, right? Like a composed yeah, I, I, I think I could basically convince the person who is not who doesn't have access to knowledge of music theory that what I played was actually written in because it's also that listening ability that you get when you when you see uh, a composition written out like four parts in the hymnal after you look through it you sing it mentally to yourself you know exactly how the harmonization sounds like you maybe even have your own ideas at that point oh, I could add this here, this might sound better, this might sound more interesting, or how to adapt that harmonization to the character of the text and everything else. Yes, uh, and it sounds like magic to, person, to a person who is inexperienced in this, right? Exactly. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to explain. It's not just the way of thinking, it's how you feel about the piece and bringing multiple elements together in your own expression of of emotion and how you see that piece and then just what I find useful when I when I do my organ recitals is program notes just before each piece a few sentences so they know what the piece is about what to what to expect um, I played recently Bach's Prelude and Fugue in C minor that starts with it more than goes on and on um, <clears throat> And actually, it's the analogy I picked up from my previous organ teacher, where if you explain to people that pedal line and <clears throat> that it's like a, a speaker who comes into the crowded hall to speak and nobody's paying attention to him, he's like chit-chatting and it's very loud. And he starts to say, like, ba -da -dum, bum -ba -dum, da -da -dum, and then it just intensifies. And then that peak of dun, da -da 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 -da, when he gets everybody's attention and then the story just goes on and on if you explain it to people like a story if you give them something to think about during the piece or the background of the piece or why it was composed or what what is the message that piece is supposed to convey mm. it just does miracles you can see people literally falling in love with the piece or meditating during it it's or be joyful with it depends what the mm. character is but it's just amazing what the piece can do if they know the background. I love how you put it uh, in a story story element here because uh, some maybe 100 years ago, 300 years ago, uh, musicians when they com composed and improvised, they knew their rhetorical figures there in Baroque exactly. times. <clears throat> and they, their colleagues knew that too. So when, uh, let's say, Johann Sebastian Bach heard a fugue, or variations or fantasia by some of his colleagues, uh, he knew what kind of rhetorical figure was used, right? And what yes. kind of story was being told. Now we have lost it all. 
right? Exactly. Yeah. Now we have to reintroduce people to all of that, but in a much more simpler way because everybody's time is precious and we cannot spend two hours lecturing about about the figures. So we just have to give them the abbreviated version of what was once a great knowledge and it still is today for for exactly. us who are organists by profession. Very true. And it's all, it all sounds like magic. Remember this... Uh, um, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, who wrote uh, uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. Uh, yes. He said that uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. <laughs> this was science <laughs> fiction, right? Yeah. So, musical terms too. It's different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> music too. If, if you are not a musician and, and you hear those chords and progressions and rhetorical figures um, wo woven into a complete musical story which uh, uh, unfolds just before your eyes as an improvisation, it's pure magic then. Yeah, what also one of my professors previously told me, I believe he was, he was then playing or recording a trio sonata in C major by J.S. Bach. Um, and I asked him a question like how, something about the feelings of the audience during him playing the piece. He's like, my goal is to, if I have a person in a wheelchair in the audience, after I finish playing the C major trio sonata, I want her to feel like she danced. Mm-hmm. So it's delivering it to people, but they need to know a bit of a background on how and why. Yes. Just the, the key is just for us to think it through and just simplify it, bring it to something that people can actually understand. Because if I start talking musical terms, uh, dominant of a dominant chord or uh, half cadences, they will look at me like, what are you talking about? So it's always it's it's time consuming but it's always worth to come up with a certain story for people exactly. to get <clears throat> because stories change people and uh, this is part of art mm. they 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 influence people in a great deal and i believe it's a great media to um not just to um deliver the message but also as you said to change their hearts just to make mm -hmm. them more receptive Yes, it's it's basically for people who are um, religious and who work in in ministry as I do. It's part of how we evangelize, and it's basically it's I see my organ playing split fifty fifty between performance and ministry, and to me both are equally important. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. taught this last summer. I taught a course at. St. Bernard School of Theology and Ministry uh, on the music of post-Vatican II, what happened here in America with umpa umpa style and uh, drums, electric guitars, throwing out of the polyphony and four-part choral singing. It was interesting to see the people's views, especially the other, I had 27 students total, and the age group was from 19 oldest lady was 86. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting to see all that 
experience and of the uh, our older class members and the um, how to put it all the excitement of the young people and just mm -hmm. trying to go through the music history see how it developed from the chant um, through the polyphony through the palestrina through the 19th 20th century and basically to what we have to what we have today basically trying to find the middle way in between the two just trying to balance out the need for new musical expressions and also having that tradition also be incorporated into today's worship so mm -hmm. it's a challenging field and it was quite interesting class because of all of those perspectives you have people who want only drums then you want and keyboards and then you have people who want only organ and how to reconcile the two so it was quite a challenge navigating all of that but very rewarding experience basically i learned a lot more i believe than what i gave them I want to talk more about that, Marco. So uh, it's a very slippery way you 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 said uh, and you entered this area because, uh, of course, uh, your students must understand the universal uh, um, globality of the church and its tradition through ages, right? That's, That's uh, polyphony, um, chant, and other things that is part of the cultural heritage globally for the church but here in america the context is rock and roll right elvis presley and they have you know in that's their that's 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 what gets people and over here quite often they just want music to be deeply emotional mm -hmm. and that sometimes gets in the way of quality church music because they will use Composers nowadays will use progressions that are often used in pop music and what sounds good at the moment. And then you see pieces of music written out that will be popular for a year or two, and then they're never going to be performed again. They're just going to disappear, replaced by something more up to date. Mm -hmm. Whether basically any music written before 1950s or 1960, um, it's still in the hymnals today. It's always going to be printed out and it's always going to be there because it just didn't, they had a text and they tried to paint the melody, whether nowadays in modern pop-like style church songs, they'll just, so people will some take like Pachelbel's canon mm -hmm. and just <laughs> write music to it right right text to it excuse me um so it's it's the age of mass production i don't believe is doing much good to the sacred music at this date mm -hmm. what can be done marco about mm -hmm. this uh, is it hopeless or or uh, a, an organist in the church can uh, shape the future of this at least locally in this congregation Organists can try to shape it, but the problem is that the society, I would, uh, I'm kind of wrong to use this, uh, church, quote unquote, society is not really um, 
comfortable. Either they're going to go one way, which is going to be completely classical, or they're going to go other way, the other way, which is completely contemporary. Mm -hmm. Rarely who that I know is trying to find the middle ground, how mm -hmm. to incorporate traditional with modern. Um, my, excuse me, <clears throat> my music director at the church at St. John's where I work in Fairport, um, an interesting lady, uh, like a mother figure, um, and basically, I'm grateful to her immensely for teaching me how to how to integrate the two. Because every series now we hear play, we have obviously 9 a.m. mass and the 5 p.m. are contemporary. I will use mostly piano, but I will use organ for all the mass parts. Mm -hmm. While 10.30 Mass, where we have the big adult choir, is predominantly classical, so people have a variety of things to choose from. What fits them best, that's, that's the Mass they will attend. Um, but in any of the Mass, you always try to combine, if it's the classic, quote-unquote classical Mass at 10.30, it will be predominantly classical program, but we are not afraid to put in a piece of music that has been written recently and it's quality music, but we also are not afraid on our contemporary services every once in a while to put a classical piece in that people know by heart. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's always trying to balance and teach people that the music, different music from different period styles, it's not mutually exclusive because it was, same thing when we're trying to get the congregation to sing, the way we explain it to them, it's when the organ is played, when the hymn is introduced, um, and when you start singing, it's not just about singing, it's, it's even, it's not just music, it's not just singing, it's, connect, it's connection on a physical level, because when we sing, our bodies vibrate on a, almost the same frequency. It's bringing that greater sense of unity when the whole congregation is singing. That, those are the moments that make me really cry because it's the dream of every organist to have the congregation really sing out. Mm -hmm. And it happens here quite often and I'm really blessed that I'm able to be a part of that process to help them sing out, to encourage them to sing and then just pick the fruits of all of that labor. It's just amazing. Mm -hmm. It's very mm -hmm. spiritually, mentally, and musically rewarding. It, it, it makes you feel not just good, but that what you're doing is truly making a difference in the lives of these people. Mm -hmm. And therefore, mm -hmm. there go my organ performance and my organ registrations and how I paint the text of the hymn. Just the other day... Um, at the funeral, we had uh, How Great Thou Art Him, Ostoregud is the original title. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And the second, uh, one of the verse was Hear the Rolling Thunder. I had no problem putting all the two of the 32 foot stops on just mm -hmm. to get that thunder effect. Or in the verse two, birds sing sweetly in the trees. I had no problem putting the harmonic flute and making mm -hmm. the trolls on top of the main melody. So it's just 
getting people to live with a text because texts as they were written before they were teaching you theology it's basically singing theology so that's what that's what's really important to me for them to get the message that text is trying to relay and the music as its media and marco what kind of feedback have you got uh, so far from people from congregation about this mostly mostly positive some people will be a bit grumpy like ah oh, you're not playing you're not playing that modern song we know we really want to sing that I was like i know i played every once in a while but i cannot play it every single time mm-hmm. uh people are very appreciative and supportive at least where i work now and believe around the place where the people work too um uh, they they really like when they see that you put a work to it and that you are experiencing it as they would want to experience it maybe when they see you are excited about the piece you're playing and that you're really into it uh they tend to sing out more they tend to participate more so we are not just ambassadors of music we're ambassadors of participation and there to encourage them mm-hmm. to do more to sing more and that's especially um what always makes me joyful is that when i played a postload i never had an empty church they always like to stay they always like to stay and listen because i introduce the piece just before the mass is done when we have the announcements in the end um also this is going to be played and i give really like two sentence brief history or uh just a few weeks back i performed the jig fugue in g major by jes bach and all i think i told them is well you should really come behind the console and see organist's feet move faster than his hands <laughs> and i had 20 or 30 people just come around the console and just be in a like and the comments after was like this requires much coordination i was like well yes <laughs> but it was rewarding for me to have them there as it was rewarding for them to see me play so it's it's always two way relationship mm-hmm. it's not just what i give to them it's what they give to me their appreciation means a lot to me personally i mean i'll sometimes get I played uh L'Apparition by Messiaen. Some people were like I really felt like the heavenly church was coming down to earth. Mm-hmm. While there were a few others who told me like what kind of music is that like what is that why did you play that I don't really like it how it sounds I want something mm-hmm. cheerful. I was like well cheerful will be next time and I think the week after I played the Trick Fugue <laughs> but mm-hmm. there are no, you're never going to make everybody in the congregation and the audience happy there's always going to be somebody who will be not too content with it or i mean it's what the organist's world is about our whole lives will be listening oh you're doing this wrong do it this way and then another person is like that's wrong do it this way what i think is important is just to get opinions from others and their inputs and then form your own style of playing i mean being faithful to the historical performance practice 
but still giving your own personal input and your own expression to it. Because nowadays what I see, as you know, um, multiple Oregon schools, especially in the States, every, you know how some professors teach, other teach like this, uh, third one teach like that. Mm-hmm. Students tend to stick to their professors teaching strictly and as it's the only way to go. And they rarely look around. So um, it kind of creates that vacuum between the organization. Oh, he plays it like that because his teacher plays it. I don't like how he plays it. Therefore, I don't like the person. And then you have the entire series event just going round and round. Uh, mm. But Eastman here, where I went, um, quite an extraordinary experience. We have three full-time Oregon professors there, two adjunct faculty for the Oregon. <clears throat> It's amazing how there's always you're supposed to do the research before you even start the piece. You're supposed to look through a couple of the editions. You're supposed to hear other people play it, found the recordings online by quite some performers, then learn it and then bring it to the professor so the final details can be polished. But it was never forceful. It has to be strictly this, 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 this. Is that latitude that they gave me here I'm very grateful for and it's really helping me in my Sunday playing every Sunday Mm -hmm. yes Marco uh, a lot of what you are saying um, uh, reminds me what I've read from the classic textbook that Quentin Faulkner wrote in his Was it required reading uh, at Eastman too? Uh, we have the list that is recommended for reading. So mm-hmm. as the pieces come up of different styles, um, Professor was still like, you might want to read this book or this chapter from this book. When I first came in here, I had to read a whole bunch of articles from Jon Lelkvik. Uh-huh. It was about, um, I, I believe it was... Swaling's Balo del Granduca that I was playing. Mm-hmm. And it has some reference to it about um, his music. So it was, it's always, as you come to the piece, obviously when when I played my first Vidor piece, I played finale from Vidor's Symphony Number no. 4 in F major. Um, I read at that point Life Beyond the Takata. So as, as different piece and different style would come in, the ratings would come usually with it. It's always suggesting like, uh, it was fun. I was playing some Krebs' uh, trio in F major. And my professor just wanted me to read a book by Quantz on playing the flute. I for the articulation, for the articulation and everything else. Or Leopold Mozart or C.P.E. Bach, right? Exactly. As as the pieces come along, so would the literature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those historical treatises are very important in order to be able to understand the ideas behind the composition, right? So it's very good that we have those trans- translations sometimes into English from original languages. And now we have uh, the ability to, to uh, read into the mind of the composer who was... Uh, who lived maybe 300 years ago. Exactly. 
I mean, most recently, excuse me, <coughs> I was learning Takara NF by Dietrich Buxtehuda. Now, Buxtehude 157, that starts with that, so Passaggio. Um, and my current professor is like, oh, you should really read a book by Professor Kerala Snyder on Buxtehuda because she did quite a substantive research on him. Some people even call her uh, Mrs. Buxtehuda. <laughs> oh. uh, so, as I said, it, it always, with the, with every new piece, a new, a new piece of information is to be revealed. I see, yeah. It's just growing with the literature you play. <clears throat> they had about four daughters, I think, and they were uh, uh, all... Uh, uh, I think uh, organist at Lubeck was re required to marry uh, <laughs> predecessor's <laughs> daughter, right? That was a requirement. In order to get the position, yes. Yes, and Bach didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, wonderful. Uh, I'm so delighted we have talked about those things, Marco. Uh, just um, also, I'm very eager to know what is so challenging about your work today that you encounter week, week to week? Uh, uh, what is this number one thing that, that you have to overcome? Uh, finding time to practice. Oh, oh. <laughs> that's <laughs> universal, right? Yes, because when you work full-time in the ministry on a parish of this size, which is almost 3,000 families, and only have a couple of thousands in attendance each Sunday. So I have to play for five services each weekend. Um, getting ready all those different music programs we do each Sunday because few pieces will overlap, but every mass has its own distinct repertoire. Mm -hmm. Then you have to prepare it. You have to uh, make arrangements for the musicians that come in, make copies for the choir, do a whole bunch of... Uh, administrative work and then at the end of the day oh i need to practice and then you sit in the evening when everybody is gone for two or three hours each day and you practice for sunday and then if you were lucky you might be able to get five or six hours a week total to practice organ literature or for my next lesson so working full-time in a ministry is very rewarding but it can drain the person really quick so we always have to be careful how we manage time and how we budget it just trying to practice whenever you can but also keeping it at a sane level uh -huh. marco uh, so you mentioned that your work uh, in liturgical setting is kind of in between of uh, administrative work and also, you know, practical work as, as a musician. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us, um, what is the most creative thing you do uh, on, a, on a weekly basis in your work? What is the most creative thing you have to do? Working on the reharmonization of my weekend hymns for the final verse. Mm -hmm. When I have them singing news and I always try to come up with something. Excuse me. <clears throat> juicy or unexpected something they won't see coming or 
it's not something I practice, but rather do quite often, and it sometimes drives my choir members nuts. Mm -hmm. I will modulate in between the verses, mm -hmm. and I never tell them when it's going to happen, and it's all volunteer choir, so none of them are all musically trained, so some of them had issue with that. But mm -hmm. after a while, they start like poking me like, aren't you going to modulate have in this hymn like after verse? I was like, I don't know, maybe might happen. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll even modulate in the middle of the verse if the space allows it. But it's it's basically playing around how to make peace more interesting. That's the most creative thing I do mm -hmm. during my week for in preparation for the weekend. It is challenging because um, I don't want to be just stacking parallel fifths one to, one on top of each other. I want to really think it out so it has some harmonic logic behind it. Mm. Not when when I'm doing that, I'm trying to make it music theory proof as well. Mm. Not just oh. The fifths sound good, but I don't know why am I using them or how I'm using them. Then, for me personally, it's kind of counterproductive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the cantors also, with the cantors, when I work with them, I've been very blessed with gifted people here who are all volunteers. We have no paid cantors who do a really good job, and they tolerate my exhibitions during playing. So it's it's very very rewarding. And that's that's what keeps me going. That thought of the weekend. Oh, I work, but it's also time to have some fun as a musician. Mm -hmm. It's it's basically how I perceive it. It's having fun. I see it as a work, and I prepare for it, and I'm serious about it. But it, at the end of the day, it's what I love to do, and it's fun for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, Marco, uh, you know what helps me to find time. Uh, <coughs> my um let's say practice right and sitting down on the or organ bench um is uh, i'm doing my most creative things first in the morning mm -hmm. and whatever the most uh, challenging for me creatively i do it first thing in the morning and then if something goes wrong with my day if i have uh, you know a very hectic day you know answering people's phone calls or some kind of emergency or something Mm -hmm. At least I know that I did something uh, creative first. Um, that's that, that's a good idea. Yeah, but of course it's early. You have to get up earlier than than you know you should probably, and uh, and just for half an hour or one hour you are alone. Nobody is disturbing you, and you're free to do whatever you need to uh, grow as a creative person, right? <clears throat> And you are fresh in the morning, so yes, one cup of coffee does the miracle. Exactly. <laughs> I haven't had my morning coffee yet. I've been lazy. I'm on a vacation right now. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope, Marco, that next year will will not be as strenuous for you. That uh, you will not have to. Uh, basically divide your time between your studies and work and pleasure so that you could really focus and concentrate on on things that matter to you the most mm -hmm. right. right now the ministry is what matters to me and just putting all what i learned through the school both through my two theology degrees and through my music degrees 
just to have it incorporated in one and see how it works in the real world outside the perfect conservatory conditions. I'm just trying to put to work what I have, um, what I have learned, and that's my current goal. And after that's done, I believe it's going to be time to go back to school again. I hope it will bring you even more creative challenges, right? Uh, and of course, uh, the, that's the joy and beauty of it, right? You will give exactly in congregation so much more because of that. So, Marco, um, our conversation was very fast and wonderful. I we talked almost for an hour. And wow! I didn't, this is how fast the time was passing, just like a good recital. Yeah. So, uh, of course, uh, now our listeners would like to know more about you. And uh, could you give our listeners a link uh, uh, to your website or church website or another online platform that they could visit, click, and support you and your work? Absolutely. Um, my website is www.marcopranic.com. I'll repeat it one again. once again. It's M-A-R-K-O. P-R-A-N-I-C dot com. Basically my first and last name together dot com. And my church where I work, it's St. John of Rochester in Fairport, New York. And the web address is www.stjohnfairport.org. So stjohnfairport.org. It's one single word. And under music ministry, you can find uh, videos, music programs, some resources for cantors and choir members, basically what what we do there. It's five ensemble, five uh, choirs, three instrumental ensembles. It's just very vivid ministry. Wonderful, thank you so much, Marco. And keep creating, keep sharing, and, and most importantly, keep surprising your congregation. Thank you so much for having me in your show. Really appreciate it. And I'm grateful to be able to share some of my perspectives with the fellow organists and musicians. Thank you. That was fun. We should do it more often. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog, Secrets of Organ Playing, at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights, practical advice, and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vida Spinkavitus. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you online really soon.